Today's reading will be from the book of Psalms, chapter 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Brian. It is exciting to see our servant leaders continue to grow, different people commissioned in. Uh, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Arcadia. Happy Mother's Day. It's good to see everybody here. Um, in typical fashion, we are going to be preaching on the uh, seeming cruelty of God's mercy on Mother's Day. So that's what we're, typical Mother's Day sermon. Uh, so I know you guys are all anticipating that. So we wanted to deliver. Um, but uh, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know, we're, we're preaching through the book of Jonah. And typically what that means is we're taking a section of scripture, whether it's a chapter or, or something like that, preaching through the context, figuring out what the author is trying to say, and then ultimately trying to apply it to our lives. But every once in a while, and we're trying to be better about this when we're looking at the preaching calendar, when a theme or a topic comes up within the context of something like this, that is pervasive, that is a larger theme of the scriptures that we feel needs a little more uh, specific timing, just that needs a deeper look. We're wanting to slow down and actually take a look at that one thing. So today we're actually, we're going to still be in the book of Jonah, even though I know we just read from Psalm. But we're going to be taking a look at a very, very small section of Jonah, and we're going to look at how the greater theology of what is being said there applies to not just the book of Jonah, but the whole of Scripture and what that means for our lives. So really, today we're going to be looking at the statement that is made at the end of Psalm 3, that is made in the middle of Jonah 2, 9, which I'll read in just a second. And then we're going to see at the end of Revelation, which we'll get to eventually. And that statement is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we're actually going to take all of this morning, looking at those uh, four words. Is that four words? Five words. <laughs> right as I said that, I'm like, that's not four. <laughs> that's five. It's fine. It's going to be a great morning. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at those five words. We're going to be looking, taking a very close look at the implications of each of those words what the larger statement means, why it's both incredibly challenging when we actually look at what this statement means, but why it's also incredibly good news. Um, so let me read from Jonah 2, 2.9, and then we'll really just dive into this topic. So starting in verse 2 of chapter 2 in Jonah, it says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. 
For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up. You, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, before we break this statement down, I think it's important that we, we make a distinction between what's happening in the situation of when Jonah prays this, and that the author, who whether it's Jonah who wrote Jonah or some other person who compiled the story of Jonah, the author is trying to communicate something di different and bigger with this statement. So we see in Jonah's intention, when he's praying this, Jonah was a, a prophet who was deeply rooted in the Psalms like any other prophet. So basically, he jumped into the ocean thinking that he was going to die. G God saved his life through a giant fish, brought him up, spat him out on the shore, and being somebody deeply rooted in the Psalms, in his repentance, in his prayer, he quotes from Psalm 3, thanking God for saving his life. He quotes from Psalm 3 saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. So in that moment, Jonah is praying this and really just meaning, God, thank you for saving my life. And I'm not sure if he was thinking about much else apart from how badly he smelled at that moment because he would have smelled awful. But the author is doing something different. The author is recognizing a deeper theme, a more challenging theme that not only draws together the whole book of Jonah, but it's something that you have to deal with throughout the rest of Scripture. That if we can't wrap our heads around it, if we can't really confront it head on, then we will miss uh, the, the depth of the incredible power of the sovereignty of God's mercy. And so we need to see this, that this was both a situational statement and a theological statement being made. So let's look at this statement. When it says salvation belongs to the Lord, not just here in Jonah, but anywhere in the scriptures, when this is referenced, what does the Bible mean? And why should we, at least at first, be incredibly uncomfortable with this phrase? Because I think we hear this and think, well, that's great. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But when we really get into this, I think we're going to find this is a harder statement to swallow than we realize. Well, let's first look at just the idea of salvation. When the Bible talks about salvation, when we look at and see this, what does the Bible mean? What is salvation? Because I think oftentimes in our context, we think of salvation in a very God is saving sinners from their sin type way, which is very accurate and very true. But the Bible has a much larger scope of what is meant by salvation. And for us to appreciate the nature of the God who saves, the salvation that belongs to the Lord, it's important that we understand the scope of salvation that God is referring to. So really, we see it play out in four ways. The first is that salvation is something that is situational. And we see this actually right here in Jonah. 
Jonah is recognizing that God saved him in his particular situation. He saved him from death. We see earlier in the book of Jonah that God saved the sailors that Jonah got kind of cast out from, from death there. God is a God who saves in all contexts. And I think that's something really important to recognize. Because we are in moments all the time where we feel like we need rescue. The little things, the big things, when we're at home and we're just struggling for whatever reason, God is a God who can save in the midst of that. When we are confronted with really hard, really sad, terrifying news, God is a God who can save in the midst of that. When we are met with all the various challenges that we find at work, in life, in friendships, God is the God who can save in all of those things. God is the God who saves in all circumstances. He saves in situational ways. You know, I was reminded by this, um, my, my oldest son, Kyler, when he was a little baby, um, I think it was one of the first times he had ever really gotten sick, like really like high fever sick. And as a new parent, it was terrifying because it's really scary when your child gets sick. They don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. And so I remember picking him up. We were trying to get him down, and he just kept on waking up because of his fever. And I'd pick him up, and I would pray for him. And I'd say, you know, I, I prayed that God would take away his fever. And I remember it kept on happening over and over again. And finally, I picked him up, and I wasn't praying. And he was old enough to speak. And he said, Daddy, pray. Daddy, pray. Just holding him. He said, Daddy, pray. And it was one of those moments where I just remembered the simplicity of the salvation of God in all circumstances. We so often think of salvation in a theological way. We so oftentimes think of it in an eternal perspective, which is accurate, but we forget that God is the God who saves in all circumstances. That salvation applies to everything. That we can turn to him in particular situations. And so we see in Jonah, and we see in the rest of the scriptures that when it talks about God's salvation. It's not just meaning those things, but it's meaning situational. See, the second aspect of salvation is that it is also individual. And this is not me, me saying that it's more than individual. It's not me saying that it's less than individual. In the book of Jonah, we see the prophet's salvation. That is one of the themes that we see. Uh, somebody in the preaching collective the other day said, what's really interesting is the salvation of Nineveh is really also the salvation of the prophet. That what drives the prophet to true repentance that we see that we just read here in chapter 2 is this reality of the salvation of Nineveh. That God uses that to ultimately save and redeem the prophet. That he's using that to bring the prophet into a place of repentance. And I think this is something that we have to just rejoice in. That salvation, that God saves sinners and he saves individuals. I think the question that we have to ask when we look at the book of Jonah is why didn't he just send somebody else, right? Jonah was so dead set on not obeying God that he got on a ship, went as far away as he possibly could, and jumped into the ocean, okay? That's how disobedient he was to God's calling. And at that point in time, you think, well, there's probably some other prophets, you know? There's probably some other people he can send. 
And so you have to ask the question, why did God go through so much to just do that? And it's because he cared about the salvation of Jonah. He cares about individuals. God is the God who saves individuals. He saves sinners from sin. And salvation means that he wants to save you. That's incredible. That he doesn't just see us as cogs in a wheel, but he cares about the individual. He cares about us. He is seeking out you. He's seeking out me to rescue us from sin. That God's salvation is not just situational, but it is individual, and that is beautiful. The next aspect we see of salvation is that not only is it situational and individual, but it is communal. That God desires not just to save individuals, but he desires to save communities. He desires to save cities. He desires to save nations, tribes, tongues unto him. We remember that God wants to save Nineveh right at the very end of Jonah, the very last thing. It shows God's heart for the city of Nineveh. He says, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? I think it's important that he wants to save cows. Um, God wants to save cities. He wants to save nations. He wants to save communities. God's salvation is so much bigger than the individual, and that doesn't mean his salvation for the individual is less, but if we only see it as that, we miss the greater picture of God's salvation, that God is seeking to save cities, communities. You know, I think one of the, one of the more dangerous ideas that we have is this idea of America being this Christian nation, and we've talked about this before, and if you have any questions about that, you can talk to Frank about it. Um, but, but I do think one thing that we have to remember in the midst of this is although America is not a Christian nation as we assume, God desires to save America. God desires to save America the same way he desires to save Iran, China, Russia, any other nation. God desires to save nations. He longs for the day in which all nations, every tribe, every tongue, will worship him and bow down. God desires to save communities. And he wants to restore communities, too. He wants to reconcile what's broken within communities, the things that divide communities from each other. He wants to reconcile those things. He wants to save and redeem those things. The other place where this shows up, this phrase salvation belongs to the Lord, or in some iteration of it, is in Revelation, and it's done in the context of recognizing the nations worshiping before God. It says this in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's salvation is for all people to come to him and recognize that God is the God who saves. So God is 
God's salvation means that he is saving us in individual circumstances. He's saving us as individuals from sin. His heart is to save and redeem nations, all tribes, all tongues, unto him to worship him. And then lastly, we actually see that it even gets bigger than that. Salvation is bigger than even what we can see, and that salvation, his salvation is cosmic. That it's not just situational, individual, communal, but it is cosmic. He is saving all of it from evil, from death. His goal is to save the entire creation, not just what we see, but beyond, heaven and earth, all of it, from the powers of evil at work within it. Colossians 2.13 says this, 13 through 15 says and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross and listen to this he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him this shows the cosmic nature of his salvation, that God, and this is probably the most important part of his salvation, it's probably, it's just the one we see the least and understand the least, but the evil things that are, are driving this, this as uh, is described in Skeletons in God's Closet that we've made a few references to, the hell that has invaded and separated heaven and earth, this reality that we're living in, the brokenness of sin, the evil forces behind all of those things, the demons God is saving us from that. God is saving all of creation from that, rooting it out and casting it out. So we see that when God talks about salvation, when the Bible talks about salvation, and even when Jonah here is talking about salvation, he is meaning it in a much broader idea than what even Jonah is seeing in this moment. He is not just the God who saves in situational moments, even though he is. He is not just the God who saves individuals from sin, even though he is. He is not even just the God who saves communities and nations and tribes and tongues from the clutches of evil, even though he is. He is the God who is saving all of creation from evil. He is the God who is reconciling heaven and earth and casting hell outside the gates. That is the scope of his salvation. So now I want to look at the next two words. I do recognize that there are two words there. So we see salvation. Now let's look at what the implications of belongs to are. And this is where I think we're going to find some friction. So in the Hebrew, it's actually two words, this verse. Uh, Yeshuat la'adonai. And they're really just, the way they're constructed together shows the relationship between that. And it's really important that we understand this because the type of relationship that they have shows a different type of belonging. You're going to see it read in certain translations, salvation belongs to the Lord. You might see salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation is for the Lord. Salvation is unto the Lord. You might read different translations, translating it different ways. But what I think is really important is that this is not something that belongs to God that is external to him. Because there's a different way you would write that in Hebrew. This is a type of possession that is rooted in him. 
that the type of salvation that belongs to the Lord is the salvation that comes from who he is as a person. It belongs to him because it's a part of his nature. And that changes how we understand the nature of salvation. Salvation is a part of God's identity. He is the God who saves. Salvation is his by nature. Which means that every aspect of salvation, the situational salvation, individual salvation, communal salvation, and cosmic salvation, falls within the scope of the sovereignty of God. That because God is sovereign over all things, every aspect of salvation belongs within the scope of his sovereignty. And this is where we get to what I think Jonah, the book of Jonah, is trying to push us to. It is an uncomfortable place. And I want to set it up because there's a perspective that we can read this that ultimately is going to make us a little uncomfortable. And I think it's intentionally written that way to make us go there. I want you to think of Jonah for just a little bit because I think oftentimes we have allowed veggie tales and other things like that to define our understanding of Jonah. And I think for me, what has really illuminated uh, this is, or what has made Jonah come alive to me is really understanding who Jonah was and better situational realities of it. And Frank talked about this a few weeks ago. It's not about this bratty prophet who was comfortable in Israel, didn't want to go to Nineveh, and decided to run away. I think that's the idea we have, the self-involved, selfish prophet. I think the much better way of thinking of it, and Frank talked about it the other week, is that this is a guy, it would be like God asking somebody inside the concentration camps to go and preach to the Germans. And him knowing full well that God is the God who saves. Knowing that if he were to go to the Germans, that he would redeem them. And that changes the nature of how we understand the book of Jonah. Jonah is running away, not because he doesn't believe God can save, but because he knows he can and can't stand the fact that God in his mercy is redeeming his enemies. That God in his mercy is redeeming people who are, by all accounts, both biblical and extra-biblical, all the historians are terrible, terrible people. The Assyrians were awful. And he knew that God in his mercy would save them. And it brings about a cruelness. And, and there's other books, I think particularly the book of Job, where I think the purpose of the book is to put us in a place where we're not actually asking the question, is Jonah good or bad? Because that's a common question we have in this. Not even asking the question, are the Assyrians good or bad? But we're having to ask the question, is God good or bad? That's the question that this pushes us to. Is God being cruel to Jonah? by forcing him to do this. Jonah would rather die than suffer the, the pain of coming to his oppressors and telling them that God can save him. And God doesn't even allow him to do that. He has to be pushed into this situation. There's a way of reading Jonah where we have to deal with whether or not we actually believe that God is good in the midst of that. And if you're uncomfortable with this, that's okay. That's the point of the book of Jonah. It pushes us to that point of uncomfortability. The book of Job is the same way. We have to almost put God on trial for the seeming cruelty and unfairness of his mercy. 
And the question we have to ask is, do we truly trust, even in all of this, that God is good? Jesus actually talks about this same problem in a parable he tells. And I think not only that, but it will help us in understanding how to navigate this reality. It's in verse, uh, chapter 20, starting in verse 1 of Matthew. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. And listen to this. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is what's challenging about those two words belongs to. Is that God will grant mercy to people we don't believe deserve it. God is going to do what he wants with that. And the response we have to wrestle through is God cruel in that or is God good? God will save people. God will redeem people. God will show mercy to people who have hurt you, who have hurt other people. God will oftentimes use you to help redeem and save those people. And in some ways, if we're looking at this from a certain perspective, that can seem cruel. And I think if we're looking at it from the perspective of Jonah, I mean, we look at the way Jonah ends. Think about the way the book of Jonah ends. And I know we haven't preached there yet, so if you have not read the end of Jonah, spoiler alert. Nineveh gets saved, Jonah gets depressed, okay? That's how it works. Jonah goes up on a mountain, he cries, he's sad, he's mad at God, God decides to give him a fig tree and then kills the fig tree, and he looks at him and he says, why can't I show mercy to these people? And it kind of ends like that. There's no resolve to the book of Jonah. Because Jonah is wrestling with the same thing that we eventually will have to wrestle with. And that is the implication of the sovereignty that God has over his mercy. What we have to see is that this verse is about, and I'm going to use a big theological term, election. Okay? Election is the doctrine where God chooses to save. And I know that that is a hard doctrine for us. But I think, and this is what changes it for us, 
I think a lot of it has to do with our perceptive, or our perspective on how we understand the doctrine of election, how we understand even what's going on in the book of Jonah. Because if we do it from the point of empathizing with the individuals, which makes a lot of sense, then I think we end up with the conclusion that God is being a little cruel to Jonah, a little unfair, right? Who would make a guy who's being oppressed, hurt, have to betray his countrymen to go and save enemies whom God will eventually ultimately destroy and judge? We see it from that perspective and see this from the perspective of God's election, God's sovereignty, God's mercy being about us, then sadly we will always end with the conclusion that God's mercy is at least a little bit unfair and a little bit cruel at times. But that's not how the Bible wants us to read this. Because ultimately the Bible is saying that God does these things and is good. That his salvation is real and it belongs to him. And I think what really sunk into me is this understanding, at least coming to this position, wrestling through with, with faith, that election, that God's elections, God's sovereignty, the way he chooses to do his mercy has nothing to do with me. It is not about me. It is not about you. It's not about us. It is about God. It is about God. God chooses to do what he, with what belongs to him, whatever he wants to do. So there's two ways of reading Jonah. The first way is the, kind of what we've been talking about. it That the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord and that it's extended to Assyrians almost at the, at the hurt and detriment to Jonah seems unfair and cruel. The other way of reading it, and the way that we have to ultimately get to as we wrestle through this, and that there's so much peace and goodness in it, is recognizing that Jonah can also be read as a book about the incredible mercy of God to everybody who doesn't deserve it. That God's mercy is extended to people who don't deserve it. And who are we to question how God uses what belongs to him. Who are we to question how God chooses to dispense his mercy? There's a quote by Abraham Kuyper that says this, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And I'm assuming that he said this dressed as a lion with his lion cub looking out over the Serengeti. Um, every time I think of this, I always think like everything the light touches is yours. <laughs> but I think that's important because here's the thing, like there's nothing that we can do to change the reality of what the Bible is talking about. God is sovereign over all things. Salvation belongs to him. It is rooted in him. God can do whatever he wants to with what he has. He can give mercy to whom he chooses to give mercy. That is the reality. That will not change. The difference is we can respond to it in two different ways. We can fight it, which is what Jonah does at the beginning of the book of Jonah. He runs away from it. And if you notice, the language in the, book, the first book of Jonah, part of Jonah says he keeps on going down and down 
and down until it ultimately says that he goes down into the pit, into Sheol, into death. That to reject the reality of God's sovereignty over all things is to go down into the pit towards death. When he repents, when he recognizes and declares in the midst of it that salvation belongs to the Lord and that everything is his, when he recognizes that there's not a square inch of anything in this world that is not God's, including salvation, he begins to go up. And that's what we're going to ultimately have to wrestle with when we look at this passage. It's not whether or not this is true. I mean, you can, you can challenge that, all that stuff. You can talk about it. But at least from the Bible, this is not like a small point. This is not a little point. This is pervasive throughout the whole Bible. Everything that God made is God's. Salvation belongs to God. Everything's rooted in his sovereignty. God can do what he wants with what is his. That will not change. The difference is what do we do in response to it. Before I close, I want to look at the last two words, which is the Lord. Because <laughs> I think it's also important that we understand what the Lord is and what the Lord isn't. And I've made an, a non-exhaustive list of things that are not the Lord that I thought I would walk us through. The Lord is not our wealth, our education, our politicians and politics, our preferences, our causes, our justice burdens, our privilege. It is not our status, our race, our community, our nation, our image, our family, our friendships. It is not our Enneagram numbers. It's not our Instagram likes and followers. It's not our morality. It's not our free will. It's not our sexual identity. It's not our identity in general. And it's also everything that's not the Lord. Okay? I threw that in there just to make sure I'm covering everything. <laughs> I think you get my point. We turn to these things all the time for salvation. And we have to recognize that it's not even that these things are bad saviors, that these are non-saviors. They do not have the capacity to save because salvation belongs to the Lord. These things can't even save you if they wanted to. None of these things can save you even if they wanted to because salvation does not belong to them. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So if that's what the Lord is not, then let's look at what the Lord is. And I think that he defines himself better than anything, so I want to read this. Exodus, can you pull it up? I thought I marked it, and I didn't mark it. Oh, that is so small. Um, I can read it. I can do it. <laughs> the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So this is what the Lord is. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children and the third and fourth generation. This is who God is. God is a God who is merciful and gracious. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is both justice and love. He is perfect love, perfect wrath. He's perfect holiness and perfect incarnation. He is all of those things. That is who the Lord is. And he is the only person we can turn to in any circumstance. That is who the Lord is. 
we obviously most see him most clearly in Jesus. Jesus is the incarnation of all of those things. So this is how we're, we need to end this. This is what we need to, there's really two questions that we kind of have to ask ourselves as we leave. The first is, do we trust the salvation of the Lord is good? This is a hard question. And if you have not asked it yet, you will. Because ultimately, you are going to be confronted with the reality that God's sovereign choice, the sovereign ways in which he chooses to show mercy, grant salvation, is unfair to you. You're going to find people where you've been working your entire day, and the same people who've been working for an hour get the same wage. That will happen to you if it has not already happened yet. And you have to ask the question, do we trust that the salvation of the Lord is good? Obviously, the right answer is yes. <laughs> but we have to work to get there. It takes faith. It takes a, a deep trust in the goodness of God in the midst of that stuff. And the second is a very basic but profound question. And that's, will you let him save you? Will you let God, the Lord, Jesus, save you? I want to close by us praying, and I'm actually going to direct us through prayer. Um, so you're not going to have to pray with anybody else. You're not going to have to stand up here. Um, I might invite one of you to stand up here. Good luck. Um, but I want to just walk us through in prayer because I think no matter what, no matter where we are, each of us needs some type of salvation right now. And I want to give us a time to respond by asking God to save us in those circumstances. So will you please bow I'm going to lead us through this prayer. You're going to, you can just pray kind of silently where you are in response to what I'm directing you guys in. Lord Jesus, we recognize, God, that you are the God who saves us um, in all circumstances. And Lord, as we respond to this reality, God, I pray that we would lift up those circumstances. So God, I want to, us as a people to have some time, Lord, if we're in a place where we need salvation in our home, God, if it's financial stress, relational stress, if we're struggling with, our, with a kid, with a spouse, if we're struggling with a family member, God, right now, in this moment, we as a church will pray this to you and ask you to save us in our homes. So let's pray that now, nurses, if you need that. Lord God, there are some of us who need salvation, Lord, in our work. Lord, that in our jobs we feel like we're, we're drowning. God, I pray that you would save us in the midst of that. So Lord, we pray that now as a, as a, as a church. if these things connect with you, just pray the simple prayer that, God, will you save me in the midst of these things? Some of us, it's not so much our homes or our work, but even internally, whether it's because of grief 
whether it's because of mental illness, whether it's because of um, other circumstances, health, anything like that, we feel like we need salvation within ourselves. So let's take time to God to ask the God of salvation because we trust you that you can save us from that. So if that's where you are, ask God to save you in the midst of that. Some of us feel the need for, for salvation sickness, Lord. I know we have a family member who is uh, struggling through recovering from cancer, God, and we lift him up to you, God, and we know that there's so many here who uh, need salvation in the midst of health circumstances. So let's all lift that up right now. we don't need to be wordy we just need to ask God save us in the midst of this circumstance now some of us are here and we're just drowning in our own sin we have not given our hearts to the Savior who is redeeming us who is calling us from the pit calling us from death who have never recognized that God is the God who saves the God is the one whom we can turn to And maybe today is the day that God is putting on your heart to ask him to save you. God, we pray for those who are here that need your salvation, Lord, not just from their circumstances, but from their destiny. And if that is you, please pray that right now. God, save me. I need you. that you are the God who saves nations and tribes and and tongues, God. Lord, we first would ask that you redeem and and restore the broken community that we live in. Lord, save America, save Phoenix, save Arcadia, God, from our sin. We pray that, that God would save Arcadia, that God would save America. God, we pray that you would not just redeem us and redeem our community, but you would redeem all communities unto you, all nations, all tribes and tongues. So let's take some time right now where we are to pray that God would save the other nations. God might lay a nation on your heart, one that you might not even know anything about, but pray right now that God would save them, that God would redeem that nation. lastly, we we recognize that you are saving and redeeming all things that both seen and unseen. 
Lord, the powers that we see, Lord, and the powers that we do not see, you are redeeming heaven and earth from the clutches of hell. So let's close by just taking a moment and praying that God would redeem just all of it, that you would save, that you would continue to save us from the powers of sin and death, the powers of Satan and God, we are thankful that salvation belongs to you and no one else. Lord, we pray this now.